Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, welcome to this special episode released as part of Merrick's China Forecast. My name is Grzegorz Stets, and I'm an analyst working on EU-China and Central Eastern Europe-China affairs at Merrick's. Today, I'm being joined by three high-profile guests who will help us shed light on key global challenges of 2021. Each of the three interviews will have a particular focus, specifically the coupling and evolution of multilateralism, cooperation and competition on climate crisis, and, last but not least, development of connectivity in the pandemic world. Our first guest is the Honorable Kevin Rudd, the president of Asia Society Policy Institute. Mr. Rudd served as Australia's 26th Prime Minister between 2007 and 2010, as well as in 2013, and also as Australia's Foreign Minister between 2010 and 2012. He is one of the leading international authorities on China that remains active in second-track diplomacy. In our conversation, we will discuss the issues linked to politicization of international economy and the prospects for adjustment of the multilateral system in the year ahead. Mr. Rudd, thank you for joining us. Well, it's good to be with uh, Merix. It's good to be with our friends in Germany and across Europe. Let us start with a very big question. So in 2020, we could observe politicization and securitization of international economic exchanges. And that was linked to increase of cybersecurity considerations and re-evaluation of strategic dependence within supply chains. And we could see that in the form of outgoing Trump administration often acting unilaterally, the EU starting to discuss open strategic autonomy, and China working towards increasing self-reliance with its dual circulation policy. So, as we enter 2021, are we locked on a path for further politicization and securitization of international economic exchanges? We may have reached a stage in global affairs where we have reached peak globalization, and that is accelerated by the coronavirus experience uh, and accelerated by geopolitics between China and the United States. Uh, we have a trend on the part of a number of countries towards greater levels of national self-reliance. We see that, of course, uh, in China as the product of uh, its experience of uh, the US-China trade war, but in particular uh, the bans imposed on certain categories of technology exports to the Chinese and potential restrictions in terms of uh, access to US capital markets. We see, as you've just noted, uh, actions uh, both uh, in the European Union and in other countries uh, towards certain degrees of strategic self-reliance. So this does point to uh, the emergence of a trend. Um, Will it be sustained two to three years from now? I think the key determinant in that will be at what financial and economic cost will this trend be sustained? Because at the end of the day, if we end up doubling or trebling the given cost of a good or service delivered through processes of national autonomy as opposed to open and free markets, then governments and consumers will begin to ask questions and put pressure on as well. Talking about this relationship between costs and politics effectively, I wanted to ask you about uh, issues related to Australia-China relations. So 2020 has also seen a significant increase of tensions between those two countries, which involved economic pressure on Canberra in the form of tariffs on barley, wine, coal, and that was paired with political pressure by China. So, of course, this situation is still ongoing. But what lessons do you think other countries should take from the Australian example when thinking about security dimension of their economic relations with China in 2021? Well, the question for all sovereign states in the 21st century is do we believe and accept in and accept the principles of the uh, international liberal order uh, or do we not? Um, And one of those sets of principles relates to uh, the operation of the uh, international trading system. And international trade law 
prohibits the imposition of sanctions against other states for purely political reasons. Um, and there are dispute resolution uh, mechanisms available under trade law uh, for that purpose. Secondly, when you look at the Australian example, uh, Australia is not alone. If you look over the course of the last 10 years, you've seen various politically driven punitive actions initiated by China, firstly against uh, the government of Norway over its position on the Nobel Peace Prize and Chinese dissidents. Uh, secondly, also in Europe against Sweden over the treatment of certain Swedish nationals. Thirdly, with Japan over the question of um, Japanese policies towards the uh, Senkaku Diaoyudao disputed uh, territorial claims in the East China Sea and China's decision to suspend rare earths exports to Japan. South Korea over the question of the basing of American THAAD anti-ballistic missile defence systems and sanctions taken against various uh, South Korean industries. And more recently against Canada uh, over the extradition of um, to the United States of Madame Meng, the daughter of the CEO of uh, Huawei, the Chinese uh, telecommunications firm, and now Australia. So here is the point. Um, uh, to assume that this is a single country is just analytically flawed. The question for all countries uh, which belong to the international free trading system, and particularly those which are allies of the United States, is do we stand together or do we stand separately? Uh, because if we stand separately, the attitude of China under these circumstances will be to maximise the application of uh, economic pressure in order to bring about political and foreign policy gains. The Chinese have an expression, uh, which is to uh, kill one to warn a hundred. That is a deeply entrenched Chinese concept for how it handles uh, punitive measures against individuals and states which disrupt its policy course. That's what's being prosecuted here, and it will only be uh, countered effectively uh, if the United States and its allies respond collectively as opposed to individually. Now, taking a look at the Chinese perspective, according to reporting by the Sydney Morning Herald, you recently discussed those very challenges with Foreign Minister Wang Yi, um, who reportedly stated that, quote, if Australia sees China not as a threat, but a partner, then for the issues between us, there are better chances that we find solutions, end of quote. So what kind of resolution for this kind of trade disputes do you think Beijing envisions? The Chinese... Uh basic approach to dealing with problematic partners as it would define it is, as I described before, uh, which is to maximise individual bilateral economic pressure. Uh, and China has learnt over the last decade that often this succeeds, not always, but often. Therefore, in terms of a breakthrough to the particular dispute with Australia, uh, I believe the action will lie very much with what Washington under the new Biden administration uh, determines to do. If the uh, Biden administration uh, sets as a precondition for any restabilization of US-China relations, a similar restabilization of China's relations with close American allies like Australia and Canada and elsewhere, uh, then that may well cause China to change course. China uh, being run by a communist party driven by the principles of Marxism-Leninism and the principles of Leninist power, ultimately respects power when it is exercised. Uh, where it does not sense that it is vulnerable to the exercise of power against it, it is unlikely to change course, hence why the American equation here is fundamental. In the absence of America uh, incorporating this into its uh, overall national strategy towards China, then China's policy towards Australia is likely to continue. Referring to the issue related to the new administration, the incoming Biden administration has vowed to bring a quality change to American foreign policy and to re-engage its allies and partners, much in the way that you described. So throughout 2020, we could observe discussions about potential formation of a democracy club of sorts and boosting cooperation between like-minded countries. And that wasn't only the case for US alone. Do you think such formats that are regarded by China with much suspicion, are likely to emerge in 2021? 
often in Europe, uh, there is a view that um, uh, China and its security policies in East Asia and the West Pacific are problems for Asia and uh, American allies in Asia, but not a problem for the security concerns of America's European allies. And secondly, as a consequence of that, uh, many in Europe conclude that they can prosecute a full and comprehensive economic trade investment relationship uh, with China uh, with no foreign or security policy cost to Europe. I think the bad news for our European friends who actually hold that view is the Biden administration will not support that approach at all. And whereas the Biden administration's approach will be to embrace its European and Asian allies in a collective approach to uh, an allied strategy on China, an allied strategy for rebuilding the multilateral system after the ravages of the Trump administration, it will expect its principal allies to collaborate and to cooperate. Uh, President Biden-elect has nominated, for example, the idea of a D10 or a Democratic 10 made up of major American allies in Europe and Asia to this effect. Um, therefore, countries like Germany, like France, like the United Kingdom and Brussels itself will face, uh, I believe, a political and strategic fork in the road on this question. Um, and I believe that the Biden administration will head in that overall direction itself within the first six months of its tenure in office. And uh, if I may ask, how do you think such a D10 club would work? The United States, uh, looking at its global China challenge, understands, I believe, one core point, and that is China's increasingly assertive and confident um, and some would argue aggressive international behaviour across all policy domains is driven by a deep calculus by the um, Chinese Communist Party that the balance of power between China and the United States is shifting inexorably in China's favour. As we know, China currently uh, projects that by the end of the 2020s, it will be a larger economy than the United States when measured as GDP according to market exchange rates. That may or may not come to pass, but that is the current projection and one that's been accelerated as a consequence of the impact of COVID. That uh, crossover of the balance of power has become less evident uh, militarily, although regionally within East Asia and the West Pacific, the likelihood of greater strategic parity having been achieved in all conventional weapons categories, but also related information, cyber and space-based systems uh, could become a more finely balanced equation than is currently the case. Globally, of course, that balance of military power will take some decades to achieve. The reason I emphasise these points in answer to your question is the United States, looking at its own future freedom for manoeuvre, also understands the balance of power. The role of allies now uh, becomes critical. If you harness the combined critical mass of uh, European and Asian allies, Japan, the Republic of Korea, Australia, together with Germany, France, the United Kingdom, um, you then begin to aggregate a level of economic critical mass in trade, investment, in economic activity, the size of markets, the density of technology markets and R&D, uh, as well as, of course, the size and sophistication of capital markets when measured against China. Therefore, I think for the first time since 1945, the United States will need its allies structurally as opposed to seeing its allies as being, shall we say, perhaps useful. And where the rubber will hit the road with all that is when the United States seeks to develop in the course of 2021 a pan-allied strategy for responding to the China challenge. As you mentioned, at the heart of all that is also China becoming more assertive and at times aggressive. And that would, in my mind, link us as well to the topic of China's wolf warriors. So throughout the last year, China has deployed a much more assertive style of diplomacy that received its name of wolf warrior diplomacy, which is also deployed towards Australia, towards Europe, towards the US, towards many actors. Such diplomatic style certainly makes developing constructive framework for multilateral rules-based order much more challenging. Basing on your expertise and discussions with China's top diplomats, 
What is the reason for China to deploy such a diplomatic style right now? There is a division of opinion within China itself on how to conduct its international relations at present. Uh, long-standing traditional Chinese diplomats uh, trained in the uh, professional traditions of Zhou Enlai in the period of the last 50 years uh, do not support this uh, approach of uh, wolf warrior diplomacy or zhanlang waijiao. Um, uh, their view uh, is that the mission of Chinese diplomats is in fact to win friends and influence people in the tradition of Dale Carnegie rather than a wolf warrior. But wolf warriors... Um, believe that they have an imperative uh, from the party centre and, frankly, a career opportunity to advance their own career prospects by being much more assertive and aggressive in dealing with host countries which have failed to bend the knee to China's policy requirements. We've seen this in multiple countries across Europe. We've seen it in multiple countries across Asia and right across the developing world, often going unreported. And so the uh, reason why China is doing this is because uh, Xi Jinping has given a directive um, at the uh, Central Party Conference on Foreign Affairs at the end of 2013, instructing Chinese diplomats now to go out and struggle for the future of the international system. The term struggle in Chinese, doujong, uh, is one which um, invites um, a certain sort of set of behaviours it means no longer passively accepting the terms dictated by the collective West, as China would see it, in international discourse, including on human rights, and invites a much more assertive approach. As I said before, there is, however, a division uh, of opinion within China as to whether this is effective or counterproductive. My own judgment is that uh, it is counterproductive and, in fact, has directly contributed to the emergence of a greater, shall we say, uh, de facto alliance of US allies both in Asia and in Europe in dealing with the common China challenge. Uh, do you think that we can expect any changes to China's diplomatic style in 2021, especially given all those internal discussions that you mentioned? What we've seen so far in the period since 2013, the last seven years, um, is uh, the volume switch being turned up and turned down on the wolf warrior diplomacy, depending on the country and the season. Uh, for example, uh, during the um, uh, middle part of uh, 2020, uh, when China itself was recovering from its own ravages uh, brought about by COVID-19, uh, the temperature level, uh, the volume level, I should say, applied to wolf warrior diplomacy tend to go down somewhat. However, in recent times, uh, particularly in the case of Australia, for example, but other countries as well, as China has become uh, come out the side of its COVID-19 experience uh, and confident that its uh, economic and public health recovery has been more resilient than that of the United States and Western countries, once again, the volume of China's wolf warrior diplomacy has been accentuated. I think the likely projection for the future as this internal tussle unfolds within the China's international policy establishment is one that will wax and wane depending on the internal debate and China's perceived external strength in the external debate. Talking about predictions, to wrap up our discussion, what do you see as the key trends that will drive the evolution of multilateral system in 2021? The multilateral system prior to the emergence of the um, deterioration in the US-China relationship and the emergence of a new period of strategic competition between Beijing and Washington since uh, the end of 2017. Prior to this period beginning, already there were deep um, uh, fractures uh, emerging across uh, the UN multilateral system and the Bretton Woods institutions. Um, in other words, by, by before these uh, new tensions in geopolitics emerged, the UN system was already weakening. The Bretton Woods institutions were already weakening. And if you analyse these developments closely, as we, for example, did through the Independent Commission on Multilateralism in 2016, you could see examples 
after example of uh, nation states walking around the multilateral system rather than using the multilateral system to solve global problems. And that was because the multilateral system had become log-jammed uh, and was ceasing to function. We saw it with the World Trade Organization, the failure of the Do Doha Round. Uh, we saw it up until 2015 with the failure of the climate change negotiations, although some improvement after that. And we've seen multiple logjams occur in the United Nations Security Council and other UN agencies in dealing with established global problems. Then, if you add on top of that uh, layer of difficulty, the new geopolitical tensions between not just Washington and Beijing, but the new entente cordiale between Beijing and Moscow, uh, most particularly in the Security Council, uh, it is uh, increasingly grinding the system to a halt. So therefore, the challenge lies for the major powers, uh, particularly through institutions such as the G20, uh, to um, use the G20 and high geopolitics and negotiating opportunities at that level to begin to unfreeze the multilateral system so it can begin to deal effectively with these established and entrenched global problems. There is some prospect now that occurring on climate, given the recent changes in posture, both by China and the United States on these questions. On trade, I am less optimistic, but... Uh, there still remains an opportunity to use the G20 to reopen the arteries of uh, global commerce by a reinvigorated World Trade Organization. Mr. Rudd, thank you very much for your time and for your great observations. Good to be with you. This is Merrick's Experts. Moving to our next topic... Our second guest is Isabel Hilton, the CEO and editor of China Dialogue, a fully bilingual nonprofit focused on the environment and climate change. Ms. Hilton holds two honorary doctorates and was awarded the Order of the British Empire for her contribution to raising environmental awareness in China. In our conversation, we will discuss China's efforts in combating the climate crisis and the challenge of developing an effective international framework on this issue. Hello, Isabel. Thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So to start off, let's sum up the last year. It appears that throughout 2020, we have seen some impressive developments on climate. The EU Commission pushed forward the EU Green Deal. The incoming Biden administration declared that addressing climate crisis will be one of its key objectives. And of course, President Xi Jinping put forward China's carbon neutrality goal with South Korea and Japan making a similar pledge. So how does the landscape of global fight against climate crisis look like after last year? Are we on a better track than in 2020? Yes, I would say we are on a better track uh, than last year for all the reasons that you have just mentioned. And perhaps uh, I could mention a few more. I mean, there's a continuing growth of affordable renewable technologies and there are other advances in technology which all contribute to the possibility of the transition we need. But having said that, of course, we still have a long way to go. And the economic and political obstacles do remain. We're perilously short of time. And for perfectly understandable reasons, nations are distracted and will remain so because of the pandemic and because of the economic consequences that will follow the pandemic. So it's really essential at this point to view climate change not as a burden that can be put off until later while we deal with the things that are immediately in front of us. We have to see it as an integrated set of solutions with very important co-benefits for the moment that we're in. So recovery, resilience, green stimulus, not just business as usual. Talking about not business as usual and referring to this change on the Chinese side, the pledge made by President Xi Jinping. So many experts and leaders, including EU High Representative Joseph Borrell, have said that addressing climate crisis requires having Beijing on board. As China is responsible for almost 30% of global greenhouse gases emissions. And here comes this pledge that we already mentioned. So carbon emissions peak in 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. If we can maybe unpack this a little bit. How does climate neutrality compare to carbon neutrality? And how ambitious are really those targets set out by China? 
Well, carbon neutrality refers to CO2, which is the major greenhouse gas, but it's not the only one. And non-CO2 greenhouse gases represent maybe around 20% of China's emissions. So to achieve climate neutrality, they will also have to be dealt with. And what this means exactly, according to some pretty solid analysis, that if China were to include all its greenhouse gas emissions and not just carbon dioxide, this would bring China within reach of the emissions reductions required by mid-century for its actions to be in line with the Paris Agreement's long-term goal of limiting average global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees. In other words, if China does not include uh, its non-CO2, then it needs to bring its timing forward. If President Xi's announcement is only meant to cover CO2, uh, China would need to achieve carbon neutrality around 2050 to be compatible with Paris. Now, how ambitious has China been in its target so far? China has a track record, frankly, of under-promising and over-delivering. China doesn't like to miss targets, but what that has meant is that its targets have been quite soft. For example, it had pledged to peak its emissions by 2030 or before. This could be done, according to Chinese modelers, by 2025. And in order to be Paris compliant, uh, it would be highly desirable to bring that target forward and then to, to reduce emissions rapidly thereafter. The date matters, both because the level at which you peak is important and because the later the date, the steeper the fall that you need to achieve to be Paris compliant. So it's easy for a politician, including a Chinese politician, to make a promise for 2050. He's not going to be around to take the blame if it's missed. What matters is that there is verifiable progress now as soon as possible. Referring to this issue of verifiable progress, there has been quite some discussion about how really committed China is to meeting the targets that it set out for itself. So how can we best assess how serious China is about meeting those goals? As a general observation, I would say that China is very serious about climate change and China has identified climate change, if you like, as the opportunity as, as well as the threat and is extremely committed, for example, to further development of renewable energy. Um, but how we know, how can we measure its progress to a, a goal that is set at 2060 or, or 2050 really does matter. And the first thing that we will be looking for is what's in the 14th five-year plan. That will be officially uh, adopted in March at the twin meetings. Um, but there are some indications already of what might be in it. And one of the biggest things to look out for in the 14th five-year plan is whether new coal is still in there. If China continues to build new coal, it's making it much harder for China itself to be Paris compliant. And frankly, today we're still getting very mixed messages on that. China is deploying significant renewable power, but it continues to build new coal plants, and that is completely at odds with, with the decarbonization of the power sector. So to comply with Paris, China would need uh, rapidly to reduce its emissions from coal-fired power generation beginning today to reach around 5 to 10% by 2030 and a phase-out of all unabated coal plants by 2040 at the latest. What that means today is that utilisation rates need to be reduced and a large part of the current coal capacity and any new coal being brought online would have to be closed before its time. Talking about new coal, this is one of major points of criticism for Chinese activities abroad and within Belt and Road Initiative in particular. It has been making investments into infrastructure that are not ecologically friendly. Is such an assessment justified at the beginning of 2021? Yes, it is, I'm afraid. Uh, you know, China has invested heavily in Belt and Road countries. Uh, the bulk of those investments have been in energy and the bulk of those have been in fossil energy. So China today is still, by a long way, the biggest investor in coal globally. And if you add to that the infrastructure investments and the, their climate in, impacts, and China's talk about exporting the China model of development, which is a particularly damaging one for the climate, 
And there really is room for serious concern. So to be a responsible development actor, China needs to green its investments. And there has been some progress there, but too little and and too voluntary, frankly. Um, China has already spent or pledged around $575 billion under the BRI. Almost half of that's on energy projects. A good portion of that is on coal in other developing countries. Really, that has to stop. And is there any hope that 2021 is the year when BRI becomes greener? Well, I think it's certainly looking more likely than it was last year. Um, In fact, last year was quite promising in terms of coal on the Belt and Road, but largely because it was the host countries that were cancelling the coal project. So four of the region's largest emerging economies, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Philippines and Vietnam cancelled nearly 45 gigawatts of coal power in 2020. And that is equivalent to the total installed capacity of Germany, for example. And the willingness uh, to finance such coal projects has diminished. So you have host countries looking at what are potentially stranded assets and countries like Japan and Korea saying we are not going to fund new coal. So there have been improvements, but they haven't been led by China. And I think it's really time that China understood that it is, frankly, behind the curve on this. And it's looking more and more exposed as the as the funder of last resort for what is still the dirtiest energy source on the planet. And I think that that will be borne in on China. And I would expect improvement. And to achieve such improvement, what in your view could other actors do to engage China constructively on this issue? I think it's important to recognize that in the wake of the global pandemic, there's going to be a a real pressure on investment. Uh, Countries are going to find it very hard to meet their debts. And so how new money is spent is going to matter a great deal. And one place where international partners should have influence on China is, for example, in the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is a multilateral bank led by China. And when it was founded, um, China said that the AIIB aimed to be lean, clean and green. Um, But since then, it's been pretty disappointing on the green front. And it was only last November that the president, Jin Li Chun, said that he wasn't going to finance any coal-fired power and it wouldn't finance any projects that are functionally related to coal. Well, you know, this is very welcome and we've been calling for this, but it could be much bolder if it were really to be Paris compliant. It could be much more proactive in funding the alternatives, Renewables are cheaper than coal in many places, but many developing countries are challenged in how they manage renewables on their grid. There's a great deal to learn. It's a different method of dealing with your energy supply. Now, if if AIIB were to invest in equipping developing countries to manage renewables on their grid, it would be far more progressive in terms of the climate. And I think that international players, the international partners in the bank, could have a real impact if they chose to. Moving on to a different issue and taking a look at a slightly different angle of this story, climate crisis has been this go-to example of an area in which we can potentially, and it is even necessary for us to cooperate when it comes to relations between EU and China, but also other actors and China. But response to climate crisis is increasingly being connected with industrial strategies and business opportunities linked to green transformation. So do you think that in 2021, we will see climate increasingly becoming an area of competition rather than cooperation? Well, I think a certain amount of competition is is a good thing, provided it's framed properly. Uh, I can see competition, for example, in in technological developments, in developing the hydrogen economy, perhaps, or new forms of plastic that are really recyclable or biodegradable. All of that is welcome competition. Competition that brings a race to the bottom is obviously not what we are looking for. And I think that one thing to watch out for, um, particularly this year, is is the decisions that the European Union makes on things like um, border tax adjustment. In other words, a carbon tax um, for goods produced uh, with, with high emissions and what the European Union does about admitting those to Europe. The problem is that if you are developing low-carbon technologies and they have an extra cost, then what you don't want 
uh, is high carbon competition uh, spoiling your market? No, it's very actively under discussion uh, how you have a, a, a carbon border tax adjustment mechanism, how it might be linked to the European carbon trading mechanisms and with China's carbon trading coming on board, whether a linkage could be made there. That would be an example of what could be uh, competition and quite acrimonious competition turning into cooperation. But it will need to be quite carefully managed, I think. Slowly wrapping up our discussion, what would be your key recommendations for all sides to push forward an effective climate agenda in 2021? Top of my list and has been for some years is G20 has to stop subsidizing fossil fuels. The G20 has promised to do this for many years. It's ridiculous that we still haven't got there. Um, so that would be extremely important. And we are still running a little behind on the uh, national pledges for COP26. In the run up to COP26, I think these ambitions need to be. Uh, need to be raised. We're obviously waiting to see what the United States will do once um, once we have President Biden and the US rejoins the Paris process. But I don't think that national pledges should be contingent on what other countries do. What I would really like to see is each nation um, doing its utmost to raise its ambition as they promised to do five years ago. Isabel, thank you very much for joining us today. It was great to have you on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This is Merrick's Experts. Our final guest is Jonathan Hillman, a senior fellow with the CSIS Economics Program and director of the Reconnecting Asia Project. Mr. Hillman is one of the leading voices commenting on China's Belt and Road Initiative and has recently released his first book, The Emperor's New Road, China and the Project of the Century. Together, we will discuss the evolution of the geopolitical connectivity competition and the relevance of the Indo-Pacific region within this context. Jonathan, first of all, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's first start with the elephant in the room, and that's COVID. So as we're at this point entering 2021, how has the pandemic and related disruptions changed the landscape of geopolitical cooperation and competition on connectivity comparing to last year? So I think, um, you know, the, the pandemic was a real wake-up call, uh, you know, a reminder that connectivity does not just carry good things, right? It doesn't only transport, um, you know, goods and people uh, and ideas, but throughout history, uh, connectivity has also carried challenges, um, you know, illicit flows, um, and in this case, you know, pandemic. Uh, and so I think that reminder has caused countries to, I think, reevaluate um, their connections with each other. Um, I think countries certainly reevaluating their connections with China. And while I think many countries are now, you know, even more aware of the risks of physical connectivity, some types of physical connectivity and economic interdependence. I think at the, at the same time, the pandemic has also underscored the importance of digital connectivity. You know, it's really made the divide quite stark. Um, and it's made the costs of being on the losing side of the digital divide quite stark. Um, and so all of this is happening now in an environment in which needs for connectivity for investment and various forms of connectivity have only grown, and yet resources are more limited uh, so I think as we head into 2021, um, we're doing so in an environment where, you know, the, the challenges are certainly more acute, uh, resources are limited, um, and there's a lot of reevaluation going on. As you mentioned reevaluation, let's take a look at China's connectivity initiative, because it does seem that last year wasn't particularly auspicious for China's Belt and Road Initiative. And that seems to be a case for some time now. The initiative seems to be losing momentum a little bit for over political controversies, and uh, we can see decreasing lending commitments by China's policy banks. And last year, the pandemic, on one hand, allowed to promote Health Silk Road, but on the other, it facilitated further debt renegotiations. 
So to put it simply, it seems that BRI needs an update. And you recently wrote that we may expect a so-called great renegotiation of BRI. So what do you mean by this great renegotiation and will we see it unfold in 2021? So it's a, a great point that you make that the Belt and Road has really been pulling back. Uh, and that's a trend that even predates the pandemic. So I think it is important to know, you know, peak Belt and Road activity were, was probably in the years 2016, 2017, and then a decline in 2018 and a, a much more significant pullback in 2019. Um, and, and so the pandemic froze a lot of activities. Um, so we don't really know quite yet exactly how many activities were frozen. There's always a lag in terms of the reporting on all of that. And even Chinese officials have been very, um, you know, they've, they've stated that large amounts, significant amounts of BRI projects have been affected or seriously affected, as they've said, by the pandemic, uh, 20% seriously affected, and then somewhere around 30% or even more somewhat affected by the pandemic. And the great renegotiation is, I think, already underway. You know, we have over 100 countries going to the IMF for debt relief. For most of them, China is their largest official bilateral creditor, um, and they need debt relief. Um, and so many of them are struggling to renegotiate projects. Uh, they're doing so. They're having negotiations with a whole set of Chinese actors, not a single you know, unified China. Um, they're having negotiations with China's policy banks with uh, Chinese state enterprises. And, you know, there's a risk, I think, in this set of renegotiations that, you know, there, there's an avenue for influence here um, for non-economic objectives. And so I think the types of things we need to be worrying about and watching for um, are not necessarily asset seizures, which have been uh, certainly warned against in the past, but actually historically quite rare along the Belt and Road but other less visible forms of influence, um, things like uh, negotiations that result in um, you know, an agreement to allow preferred access to natural resources or an agreement to support China's diplomatic priorities, those are going to be very, are going to be less visible um, and therefore a little bit more difficult to track. But I think all of that underscores the importance um, for the United States and its partners and allies to try to bring more of these renegotiations uh, into multilateral fora so that they're not happening bilaterally behind closed doors. And what about digitalization of BRI? Is this also going to be a trend in 2021? Yes, I think several factors are driving a, uh, are essentially accelerating the digital dimension of the Belt and Road, even as the Belt and Road as a whole uh, has been pulling back. I think this fiscal environment that we're now living in, in which resources are more limited, um, is one in which digital infrastructure projects, which tend to cost a bit less than large transport and energy projects, become a little bit more attractive. They're also uh, less disruptive often on the ground to deliver, faster to deliver. So there's an appeal there also from the Chinese side. And you have to remember, too, a lot of Chinese tech companies now are encountering increased scrutiny in advanced markets. And so the Belt and Road remains for them a very attractive avenue to continue to grow. Um, and again, the pandemic underscored the you know, really the importance of digital connectivity. Countries, communities that were connected digitally were better positioned to weather the pandemic. Um, so all of those factors, I think, are driving this increased digitalization of the Belt and Road. And that's something that I expect to see uh, continue in the year ahead. As you mentioned, there is this increased scrutiny, and particularly Trump administration has been committed to pushing China out of global digital and tech sphere. And we have seen this kind of tech war take form of clean network initiative or targeting Chinese applications. But this is not just US. It is also India with its bans on Chinese apps following the border clashes with China. And also in the EU, the EU seems to be more mindful of cybersecurity challenges posed by Chinese telecommunication equipment and software. So how do we expect those tech or digital tensions to evolve in 2021? Are we going to observe further tech and digital fracture in the world? While there is a fracturing happening, um, you know, often between democratic and authoritarian approaches in this space, I think that in the year ahead, we might actually see some convergence, convergence among um, the U.S. and its partners and allies, many of whom have common concerns about Chinese activities in this space. 
and I think you know it's going to take some time uh, to you know work out a common approach. But there's a I think a strong potential there, um, and it's going to be difficult. I think part of that part of that process is going to not only identify the areas on which you know in which the U.S. can cooperate. Um, with its partners and allies, but it's going to identify some uh, areas of disagreement, and that's going to be natural. I think we, you know, we shouldn't expect, you know, perfect agreement in all areas, but there's definitely potential there for a more coordinated approach with regard to China. And then the second development that I expect next year to really um, start to gain steam is that you know this competition, this tech competition, I think is going to s- shift even more toward developing and emerging markets. Um, and again, you know, coordination with U.S. partners and allies there is going to be very important. But these are markets in which arguments about security um, risks are not always as persuasive as arguments about affordability. And these are markets in which China, in many cases, has a significant existing digital footprint. And so you know, th- there's, a, there's a tall order there for competing, um, and a lot of it's going to come down to providing affordable alternatives. Um, but I, that, that is, I think, something very important to watch going forward. And what form do you think this convergence between U.S. and its partners is going to take? So I think this convergence could take you know, several forms. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about you know, a tech alliance of democracies. You know, I think there's, there are things that can be done also with existing groupings. Uh, you know, through the G7, for example. Um, and, you know, I think you might see also efforts that have been announced but haven't necessarily been op- fully operationalized yet. Things like, um, you know, there's some bilateral efforts between the EU and Japan, for example, between uh, among Japan, the United States, and Australia in the digital infrastructure space. And I think, you know, those efforts are very promising, but, um, you know, they've taken some time to to get up and running. And I'm hoping that we start to see some of the fruits of those efforts in the year ahead. Now, moving from sectoral issues to more of geographic ones, so talking about Indo-Pacific, throughout 2020, we have seen some dynamic developments related to this region. Regional comprehensive economic partnership negotiations got concluded. Germany released its guidelines, sparking discussion about uh, European Indo-Pacific strategy. EU-Vietnam trade agreements came into force, and the new U.S. administration may also seek to re-engage the region of the abandoned TPP. So what role is the Indo-Pacific going to play in connectivity geopolitics in the year ahead? So, you know, in my mind, the Indo-Pacific is still where, you know, the economic action is, um, and you can't be there um, in a strategic way without an economic vision, you know, a, a, a vision that has a really positive appeal, something that's attracting other partners. And so I think, you know, the U.S. is going to start to put that together again. Um, You know, there have been some positive developments um, in the last year and a half. You know, the U.S. has, I think, a better economic toolkit. It's got a functioning U.S. Exim Bank. It's got uh, now sort of beefed up U.S. Development Finance Corporation. Um, There are things that have been happening at USAID that are encouraging. And so, you know, the incoming administration has an opportunity to take this toolkit um, and to offer a vision uh, for the region that's more attractive and to do that in concert with partners and allies. You mentioned a lot of bilateral, um, you know, efforts that are underway. I think the, the challenge here and really where the biggest rewards are, are to take some of those bilateral efforts um, and to see if they can be brought together um, you know, to, to see, for example, if um, things that, you know, the EU is doing with Japan and the U.S. is doing with Japan can be combined. Uh, you know, I, I'm encouraged that um, that potential is there. The region is definitely going to remain uh, as the focal point for economic activity. And to wrap up our discussion, let's talk about some key trends that we see for the year ahead. So what are the key trends that you think we should be keeping an eye on in 2021 when thinking about global connectivity? The trends that I think about for 2021 and global connectivity, I think about the fact that global needs, you know, the need for investment um, have only grown while, um, you know, in some cases, access to resources um, has uh, b- become more constrained. There's a competition, I think, among alternatives. And 
uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, you know, announced in 2013, not the first connectivity vision. It might be the most ambitious right now on, on the world stage, but not the, you know, not the world's first vision for connectivity and not the world's only vision for connectivity. Um, I think, you know, Belt and Road has really um, raised the importance of connectivity. It's underscored the geopolitical stakes of connectivity. And so I think, you know, what we're going to see going forward is, you know, some of these initiatives that have been announced um, partially in response to the Belt and Road, but partially because, you know, frankly, the world's needs are so great that they far exceed what China or any single country um, could deliver. Um, Some of those efforts are going to start producing in the year ahead. I also think we should watch for the U.S. to really put forward its own positive vision while getting its own house in order. You know, I think the U.S. is still going to um, focus, you know, a good amount on improving um, its domestic competitiveness, um, but it will remain, I think, engaged. Um, and I, I uh, you know, as we've been talking about, I think this this opportunity to bring partners and allies together as, as part of this um, connectivity uh, approach, um, you know, really trying to connect visions for connectivity, that's really where the, the real potential resides. So connectivity of connectivity. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I hate to... I hate to, you know, connect connectivity, but, um, you know, there, there are so many different connectivity efforts underway and there's always a risk of duplication. Um, but at the same time, you know, having different efforts is not, it's not a bad thing. The demand is so great. Um, and you know, if this competition can produce better outcomes, if it can make more options available, um, for, for countries, Um, that are trying to attract investment. I think that that's a positive outcome. Definitely an exciting year ahead. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And this closes our Global Challenges 2021 episode. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful 2021. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.